Hello, and welcome to the Think Peace Podcast, where peace crosses the mind. The show that explores the intersection of the human brain, psyche, and obstacles and opportunities to forging a lasting peace. I'm your host, Colette Rausch, and today we're talking about issues including compassion, rage, and the intersection of psychology and politics. Our guest is Dr. Daniel Rothbard. He is Professor of Conflict Analysis and Resolution at the Jimmy and Rosalind Carter School for Peace and Conflict Resolution at George Mason University. He is also leading a newly formed lab at the Carter School called Transforming the Mind for Peace Lab. His research focuses on a wide range of topics, including prevention of mass violence, ethnic conflicts, power and conflict, and the psychopolitics of conflict. He received his PhD in philosophy from Washington University, St. Louis. He has held positions as visiting research scholar at Lineker College, Oxford, University of Cambridge, and Dartmouth College. His most recent book is titled State Domination and the Psychopolitics of Conflict, Power, Conflict, and Humiliation. So welcome, Dan, to the Think Peace podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm so impressed with the other uh, guests that you've had, really dealing with cutting edge topics that are very current to the goal of peace building. Thank you. And it's been such a honor to be able to have the guest on the podcast and then to have you here today. So I want to launch in and explore how you went from philosophy, that was your formal area of study, and then over time you moved into linking philosophy, conflict resolution with issues such as compassion, rage, and intersection of psychology and politics. How did all that come together for you? Well, it came together basically when I entered the field of peace building, which is about 18 years ago, I saw these are the most pressing issues in the world that need to be addressed. And I also saw there's a need for some changes, let's say. And what I mean by changes is I saw the need to embrace other disciplines into the field of peace building. In, in a deeper way. To be sure, peace building is almost by definition interdisciplinary, involving the sciences and various forms of practice. But I think there needs to be deeper dive into various disciplines and studies, and in particular, the revolutionary changes that have been underway in various fields in psychology which as you say, psychology is not my initial field. My initial study is philosophy of science and I've done work in that area. And one of the hallmarks of philosophy is to think deeply and out of the box. That is consider ideas, some of which are totally bizarre and don't work eventually, but at least exploring them. But maybe some bizarre, creative, wild idea is constructive and valuable. 
So that's what I bring. Philosophy is kind of like in my DNA, I must have a philosophy gene. That's not scientific at all. But I'm immersed in these cutting edge areas in uh, peace building. Yeah, my mother-in-law was a philosophy major and got her degree oh. in philosophy. And she, it's interesting you, you say that she's one of the deepest thinking um, people I know. And at the same time, looking at things curious and looking at things, how they could be and how all these things fit together. And I didn't really put that together till you just mentioned that. Well, it reminds me of Jean-Paul Lederach's famous book and insight about moral imagination. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is his work is is of profound importance to our field. And it's a philosophical theme that he's bringing to bear, obviously, on current peace building efforts. So yeah. that's a, that's kind of a piece of philosophy that is that resonates right now in the field. Yeah, I, love that. I love that imagination, moral imagination, and, and his concept of that and holding that fast in front of the peace building field and aspiring towards that type of imagination. Not easy. But, uh, well, you know, it's like healthcare. Healthcare is always about the possibility of fostering health and undermining the effects of disease. It's all about possibility. Mm-hmm. based on a science and comparably so is peace building it's all about possibility and obviously we need to be prudent about our imagination but imagination is is definitely real and and we can we have knowledge from another imagination can be based on knowledge we know it worked in one area maybe this method of peace building could work in another area and as you know that's a common form of enskilling people in peace building. And I want to stress it's, it's a skill and a knowledge. And so let's, let's move um, into that imagination and imagining peace and some of the pieces that you have worked on and woven together. And I want to start with compassion. And, you know, if you could talk a little bit about what do you mean by compassion, how is that framed? Mm-hmm. And then how does that relate to peace building? You know, you've written about um, compassion towards militant um, groups or others who may have harmed us. So how does that, how does that all come together? So compassion, there, there's many different perspectives, but the psychologists have a, a really good handle on what compassion is. It's basically a sense of sympathetic understanding for people in need, plus a desire for their suffering to be reduced or them to be relieved of suffering. So it's kind of having sympathy for people suffering and hope that their suffering is, is reduced or eliminated. So that's kind of the view. And what struck me, I became fascinated with compassion because I was just so almost not tired of the negativity, but at least a little overwhelmed by the negative, the the attention in our field for good reason to a whole range of negative emotions. And our field, the field of peace building, which really tremendous successes in the 1960s and 1970s, basically drew upon aggression studies. And there are many 
studies, the famous Zimbardo prison experiment and so on. And the aggression studies just kept coming and coming. And I was just struck then by the enormous surge in the early 2000s with moral psychology. So moral psychology with the advances by, for example, Jonathan Haidt, or Haidt, I think is pronounced, Jonathan Haidt really focused on both negative and positive emotions. And we all have positive emotions, compassion, empathy, caring, sympathy. I mean, just look at how we feel. I mean, most normal, most healthy people have positive emotions about our loved ones. Why shouldn't that be the launching pad, the psychology of positive emotions that almost everybody has experience, why not use that as, as a catalyst for delving deeply into positive peacemaking? So we basically did a analysis of peace building. So one of the articles that came from this reflection is redefining peace building as a compassion field. Now that sounds a little weird, because we all know of the technical challenges and the, the empirical you know, struggles and the difficulties and the, the technique of peace building is, is obviously a big challenge and important. But at the core of peace building, I think we can see it as a field of compassion, just as the field of healthcare could be defined, that is the moral underpinnings of healthcare um, centers on the healthcare workers' compassion for patients, obviously. And that doesn't mean that, and I'm not talking about there are many other emotions, clearly there's a wide range of emotions, but in peace building, we could say that our field at the core has a moral focus on compassion for vulnerable population groups. I mean, if you think about, you know, who are our clients? Well, it's not the 1%. It's not the super rich. It's not the dictators of the world, obviously. It's designated groups of people who we have identified as vulnerable systematically um, to various forms of abuses. I mean, this is obvious in the case of the human rights agenda. I mean, so think about what, is, what does it mean to promote human rights? Well, at the core, uh, the human rights agenda broadly defined as, as articulated by the United Nations centers on a notion that each person has inherent moral worth. It's a birthright, which under certain social political conditions is violated. So at the core, the human rights agenda has designated vulnerable population groups. And you could see this in the law, in the resolutions by the United Nations, uh, the famous resolution for the prevention of genocide obviously identifies four categories of people, groups of people who are systematically threatened under certain conditions. So that reflects a morality, I mean, clearly the human rights agenda is a moralistic enterprise that reflects the moral focus, kind of our moral compass is uh, directed towards certain groups of people who we know 
will be victimized under certain conditions. Racial minorities, religious minority groups, um, ethnic groups, nationalistic groups under certain conditions. So this reflects, in my opinion, a mission, a program to foster compassion. So with the, when you took that concept of compassion, how did you put that into practice? What does that look like? So uh, we did a, a second study in which we actually interviewed people who were witnessing to witnesses to conflict. So we did a study in which we interviewed uh, 23 young people who came from violent conflict regions. And we asked them, what is your feeling about the enemy in your community? And I'm talking about people from Nigeria, Israel, Palestine, um, South Ossetia, Republic of Georgia, and Colombia. And we found for this group of people, so it's obviously only 23, so it's not a large sample. For this group of people, 10 of them expressed absolute compassion for the enemy. I mean, that's pretty significant. Eight of them were kind of ambivalent in the sense that they knew the enemy committed atrocities. I mean, horrible, the worst kind of violence against innocent people. And yet they also felt sorry for the enemy, some of whom they said, of course, are children. That is to say, the perpetrators, as, as we know, tragically, one of the great um, horrors of mass violence is recruiting of children to commit horrific acts. So the those group of people basically said that they, they really feel badly for, for many of the militants who are desperate, starving, some of them lost parents and so on. Um, and then there were five people in this study who had absolutely no compassion for the enemy because, because of what the enemy did to their people. One person even said that their enemy in Israel-Palestine committed genocidal violence against her people. And so this study, I'm not judging. It wasn't the point for me to judge. It was just to kind of get a concrete sense of their moral emotion about compassion. So we hope to do other studies like this. You ask what can be done, <laughs> which is, of course, this is the, the golden question, or I should say the answer is golden. And we're, we're, we're not there yet, obviously, but we have a, a fair amount of knowledge about what can be done. And one direction, of course, comes from the intersection of moral psychology and neuroscience. So there's been a, a number of fascinating studies that compassion can be learned. Um, it can be cultivated. People can be trained in compassion. And I know that sounds weird. You know, how do you train someone like to love other people? I mean, that just sounds really seriously weird. But there have been studies that show that when people are exposed to images of suffering, unfair suffering that are clearly, you know, horrific case, when they're exposed to 
that kind of imagery or stories or videos, there were some with videos, then over time, their sense of compassion in the next cases was enhanced. Um, so in other words, they were basically exposed to horrific cases or examples of brutality and suffering. And that induced them to feel compassion about a subsequent case. And the, these, these cases were before, during, and after. So it wasn't only after. And there's a number of neuropsychologists, uh, one of whom is Olga Klemenki and at the University of Geneva. And she did fascinating studies to show this kind of training, as she put it, in compassion. And when the compassion is, is felt, the, the subjects were then exposed to fMRI technology, you know, uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging technology, and they were tested. So their brain function was scanned and it showed that there were certain portions of the brain that were activated when they exhibited a, a sense of compassion, when they felt and said that they were compassion, uh, compassionate. And that was a pretty amazing situation which suggests that um, this is an example of what's called in the field neuroplasticity. So neuroplasticity is a technical term that means that the neural processes can be altered by certain practices and experiences. And there's, there's lots of evidence of neuroplasticity. So I see the compassion studies by Klemecki and, and others to be tremendously powerful and suggestive. I'm not sure, you know, we, we, we need to figure out how to do the details, obviously, but the, the concept of it, I mean, this is a scientifically grounded moral imagination. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, this is scientifically, this is not utopian, you know, mm -hmm. I'm not talking about some really outlandishly euphoric image that there'll be no war and no violence anymore, of course, wouldn't that be wonderful? But this is where I see the blending of the most current neuroscience with a kind of moral imagination uh, to have value. So leading from compassion, I can imagine, first of all, as you mentioned, how that could lead to a space where cycles of violence Right. Shortened, even if you mentioned, you know, it, although I'd love to have a moral imagination of there would be peace breaking out everywhere and human beings would live together in peace. But we do know from human wiring, that's a challenge. So at least we can have a moral imagination that there could be cycles of violence that are cut short, peace building mm -hmm. processes that are given the gas it's needed mm -hmm. to shift certain entrenched um, ongoing divisions. Uh -huh. So I'm curious, sometimes one might think, um, even though there are different lines of you know, inquiry, forgiveness, compassion, there's this other notion, and I wanna bring in your righteous rage um, okay. work as political power. There are some who would say, listen, there was a harm done. And rage, righteous rage, 
is also healing a process and that Mm -hmm. compassion, or I know forgiveness is separate, but I just want to bring some of those things in. People might say that's a form of um, ignoring the harm and that we need to, there needs to be the accountability. And as you know, in our field, the, there's lots of discussion around these topics and which way to go and um, peace or justice. We know these are ongoing debates. So I'm curious your view on some of these debates right. and also righteous rage as a political power. I found that really well, in, the, in the current midst of a lot of righteous rage going on around our country as well as around the world. I just see righteous rage as an incredibly powerful force and it's complex. I mean, righteous rage, we see it obviously in the, as you, as you point out, in the political dynamic, the political conflict in the United States, you have basically strategic rage that's fomented by political leaders it's intentional. I'm, I'm not sure if they believe in what they're doing or not, that, that I'm, I'm more interested in the fact that people who exhibit rage in a public setting, on a podium or in front of a camera, have enormous power. And it's based on a process well-documented called emotional contagion, that the rage is contagious. It is basically, people basically mimic what the dictator or political leader is saying, and they feel it, which is a pretty, you know, from a human standpoint, how do you, you know, get people to feel, as it were, the same feeling as somebody else? Well, maybe it's not so unusual, because we do that all the time with emotionally charged ceremonies. So emotional contagion is something that is really very common, uh, clearly demonstrated by psychologists with weddings and with funerals. I just went to a funeral um, of a tragic case of a young man who, who died. And once his wife spoke, it was, it was so emotional. And when she started crying, you know, we, I think most people, myself included, started, you know, tearing up. That is a contagion. Um, of course, an empathetic, a contagion of empathy, a contagion of rage is all around us. Uh, let me just say, it is not only limited to right-wing or anti-democratic political forces. It is exhibited by many political forces on a wide range of spectrum, wide spectrum. Now, that's a long preface to your question. Um, There's no question that some people who exhibit righteous rage from being abused, from being uh, uh, attacked, from being subjected to various forms of, of threats or terror, in some cases, there's no question that it is a normal reaction, especially people who are traumatized. If people who are traumatized, of course, it's a normal reaction to exhibit rage. Basically, it's also a healing process, as, as you suggest, because they're trying, they're, one of the um, aspects of, of, of bullying and violence is, is power over someone. So the expression of rage is a reaction to say, you cannot 
control me, dominate me, or cause suffering. However, in a political context, the rage intensifies the political division. And I'm saying now politically, mm -hmm. not just the individual rage, because rage is both individual and it's collective. Mm -hmm. So in the collective context, so we, that's, that's a really important point psychologists have shown. We need to overcome the conventional notion that my, all my thoughts are private, subjective, internal, in my head, and then there are other things that go on outside of my head that are called human behaviors. No, the two are almost inseparable as evidence. When someone exhibits righteous rage that our country is under threat or my people have suffered or they are, they are evil, that the enemy is evil and they're, they're going to kill us, first of all, those narratives are extremely dangerous. Some of them may be true. In the case of genocidal violence, they're always fabrications. In other words, in context, radically different context of genocidal violence, it's been shown that the prelude to genocide is uh, propaganda that is filled with expressions of righteous rage. It, it's righteous. They think that the enemy, the Hutu extremists before 1994 were totally convinced, or at least many of their uh, followers, that the Tutsis were going to execute them. Similarly with the Holocaust, similarly with uh, Cambodia uh, genocide. So in a political context, righteous rage is, is empowering to the, the agent it unifies, obviously, their followers, and it is a major antagonism towards perpetuating violence. Yeah, and so it's interesting because you're taught you're coming from. Let's just say there's when you're talking about compassion, we're talking about the individual relationships and an individual quality of compassion that can then mm -hmm. support, hopefully peace building and um, breaking down cycles of violence or division. And then we're talking about righteous rage where there's a component of individual. When you talk about someone right. who's been harmed, um, vict victimized by abuses, that has one dimension, but then you're pulling it into the political sphere, yes. Yes. which is interesting to me because you talk about con contagion. What I'm hearing you say is we can have our individual avenue of harm and abuse, that same avenue of harm or abuse can be used through a political power to tap into Absolutely. righteous anger, maybe blown in a way that may or may not recognize the level, but you feel it. And then if others around you are engaging in that, the contagion takes over. Right. It's this ecosystem of righteous rage, rage as a vehicle for political power. So it's really an interesting dynamic as you talk about that right. process, personal, yeah. but also collective. It's, so first of all, the rage is both individual and collective. Mm -hmm. And it is highly charged with political power. Dictators around the world, they know that convincing them about the enemy doesn't require a history book. Convincing them about an enemy in the prelude to like genocidal violence or mass violence is highly emotional. It's a highly emotional act. 
And what we've seen today in the United States by political leaders, some political leaders basically are focused primarily on emotion. It is not on the complexity of facts. This idea of fact checking <laughs> as an antidote to the, you know, the Republican Party, many of their perversions of something called reality, that this idea of fact checking just is, is um, it's not unimportant, but it's just so superficial. And it just disguises the whole point of political power in, in, a, in a context, in a highly charged context, which is it's emotional, it's felt. The rage is, is embodied that somebody has, has it deep in their gut and it's totally personal. Nobody can challenge my rage. So the, the agent of rage basically feels a uh, total authority on this. And it, as I say, it's also social. So I think there's, you know, there's, a, there's a lot of new fields that are really doing great work like cultural neuroscience. There should be a field of political neuroscience. Righteous rage is, is a social and political process. And similarly, Maybe we could have a political neuroscience of compassion. How do we foster compassion basically um, as, a, as a political commitment to undermine violence? Right, because you're, you're talking about it being on an emotional um, wave. So yeah. speak. What can be an antidote or inoculation or a preventative state within the body and the mind that helps navigate that? Right. Buttons are pushed. You know, it reminds me um, years ago when I was um, years ago after the Bosnian War and I was in Bosnia and it was my first experience ever overseas. I was mm -hmm. a prosecutor, you know, sent to Bosnia to support rebuilding the justice system, completely ill-equipped with any knowledge of any of this. But I came at, came at it from a lawyer's standpoint. And that I think in some ways was helpful because I didn't have preconceived notions and immediately picked up on the power of the political narrative and the stoking of victimization, stoking of harms. And over time, it wasn't, it wasn't quick. Over time, how it divided and um, societies and then violence ensued. And that really struck me when I came back to my um, prosecutor's office and I was sitting there talking to my fellow prosecutors in Las Vegas, Nevada, who thought I was a little crazy anyway, going to Bosnia. So it was <laughs> conceptually challenging to kind of convey was like what I was experiencing. And I mentioned to one of them, you know, that knowledge on top of my knowledge of researching years before that, even as a child, the Holocaust, given my family's background um, being from Germany, I was so as a child trying to understand how this could happen. And, it, and so a lot of research around that. And I said to her, you know, what I saw there were people living side by side and then political actors using grievances and fear to create this kind of issue. I didn't use the term term contagion, I didn't know that was what it was at the time, to stoke this and then use it for their own benefits, really for power and control. And it wasn't a political ideology one way or the other, right. you know, it was whatever was beneficial for the holding of political power. I said, I worry that could happen in, in the United States yeah, because we have slavery that was not addressed and I was from the West. So, you know, we have our indigenous communities our native American communities that we've never come to terms 
with what had happened with displacement and um, genocidal pockets of violence. And I remember the person kind of looked at me thinking, that's just not possible, right. what we've got. But it always struck me. And then here we are, and it makes me wonder. Here we are. And can we identify similar processes in the political climate that we're in right now? Are people, are, are political leaders taking advantage of fears and vulnerabilities? I mean, how about the, you know, the election fraud? The impact of the election fraud ideology, it's not based on reality, clearly, is evident in recent legislation in the various states to, uh, to restrict voting. And that I see as similar to your case that, you know, in Bosnia, where political leaders basically are stoking fears that were, are totally groundless, obviously, of this so-called fraud and implementing policies that clearly are directed against, against racial minorities, um, mostly African-Americans. And so here we have the basis for that is not reality, it's a combination of emotion and warping and delusional stories. It's like myth-making. You know, there's a myth that something happened with the election fraud. It's, it is a myth. And add, that, add to that, you know, the righteous rage statement and the moral elevation of feeling like you're saving the country. So this is morally, this is psychologically captivating. It's alluring to have a, a, as a mission, I'm saving people. What could be more morally virtuous than thinking that you're saving, in this case, the country? I'm referring to the rioters of January 6th. So the psychological uh, lure of that was very, very strong given the circumstances. And I'm, I'm not saying they don't believe it. I, I suspect they believe it. I haven't seen studies to the contrary, um, but it's psychologically alluring. And that's another important aspect about, about righteous rage. It is a kind of process in which the rage and rage person is purified of vice. Because of course, when the direction when uh, attention is given to some enemy brutality, there's a sense of kind of moral elevation of almost purity. And we see this a lot with the militants in other countries who join so-called um, terrorist groups. They say, you know, I, my mission now is to save my people. I mean, this is a universe, almost universal characteristic and look at what they made me do. The enemy made me become a militant, a warrior in this struggle. And that's psychologically alluring, especially to young men who feel they don't have, you know, a, a strong, meaningful and fulfilling life. So, so it, it's, it's very captivating, but we need to counter that obviously. Yeah. And to that, point and to kind of pull apart a few pieces if we had a moral imagination 
at the same time, I want to take that moral piece, you know, where we talked about the UN and how, how we want um, our society and humans to be oriented towards, you know, the moral mm-hmm. framework. Mm-hmm. And then let's pull in some of the neuroscience piece, mm-hmm. some of the psychology you're talking about. And let's look at the individuals um, who've been, who have been engaged in violence of, of whatever political mm. ideology in conflict. Um, people we've named as terrorists, yet if we look at some of the dynamics that led to it, one could say it's a very human thing uh-huh. and how things get manipulated by leaders or others or tapping into things. So would we bring in compassion and look at this in a way of having compassion at the same time, we can't have <laughs> violence uh, I- stoked politically. It's just, it gets very complex. So I love, yeah. we pull together all these pieces. We've got the moral, we've got compassion. And, and I just want to say one other thing. It reminded me when I um, had done some death penalty work as a federal public defender, it was this quality of, I had a client who absolutely admitted and there, there was evidence legally that he had killed somebody. And looking at his childhood and the background and everything that had gone through, one could also say that there were steps that led to this does not mean morally and legally there's not accountability. And at the same time, you see these steps. So one could arguably have compassion, understanding, and at the same time, hold the thought that there needs to be accountability. Oh, absolutely. So we hold these things in our systems, but when we're looking at our, let's just look at the United States right now. And we can look at a lot of individuals who, who, are, were engaged on the January 6th insurrection. And they believed with all their heart, as you mentioned, that they were doing something right. And there are challenges in our system. And yet at the same time, sure. you, you, you so, don't run the capital. So can you pull all that together and put it back? Uh, first in, oh, in sure. A- that's easy. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, <laughs> no, it's obviously a, a great challenge. So Basically, the move to foster compassion, to cultivate compassion, does not in any way remove culpability. It doesn't remove moral culpability. And as people have said in many societies, we care for the stranger or even the criminal, but they might do some things that they need to be punished for. They need to be removed from society. Um, So there's no question that in my opinion, if they committed violence, for those who committed violence, of which there's clear evidence, uh, they should be punished. And yet in the punishment, there needs to be a balance between something too excessive and not too excessive, not minimal, um, something in the middle. And that is a challenge, obviously, for the, the criminal justice system, it institutionalizes morality. Um, and, and with that come the kind of challenges that, that you mentioned. Um, so, uh, the context that I am really excited about is fostering compassion in, to prevent future conflicts. Mm -hmm. So, of course, psychologists have done great work and you recount a stunning episode of a, a perpetrator of violence. You said he killed somebody, mm-hmm. you know, so you have an episode of that. So obviously psychologists have, have enormous knowledge 
about the underpinnings of that, although there's still mysteries in that field. Why did the sniper of uh, in Las Vegas a couple years ago kill that many people? To my knowledge, there's no satisfactory answer to that question. Um, but um, there's a number of projects that are underway in which compassion can be cultivated. So neuroscientists have shown, for example, that uh, meditation actually fosters compassion. So that is when people basically experience a meditative state, which as you know, is basically a state of being totally present in, your, in the environment and that becomes, meditation becomes enhanced. They do actually um, enhance their compassion. And the fMRI studies have shown, again, that the portions of the brain that have been associated with compassion are activated. Um, so that's pretty amazing. S similarly, there are studies that show that um, loving kindness practices also foster compassion. And I know that sounds kind of wacky because from a scientific standpoint, because I mean, loving kindness practices have been a part of many religions, especially non-Western religions for thousands of years. But now the scientists are catching up to some of the wisdom thinkers about the, the value, not just for the individual of loving kindness, that is to release their hatred of the enemy, which by the way, Martin Luther King was a very strong advocate, um, as you know, uh, you hate the action, but you don't hate the hater. So he exhibited that kind of uh, that kind of compassion. So some studies have shown that this training in loving kindness training is um, meditation. Loving kindness meditation basically fosters compassion. So what if we're able to do this on a larger? That's the, an obvious question. We can. It has been shown in small scale. And I think, you know, uh, we can do it in a, in a larger scale. We just, as you know, we just launched a laboratory for peace at my home institution, the, the Carter School for Peace and Conflict Resolution. And the laboratory for peace is going to examine four psychological processes, four projects, one of which is to cultivate empathy and to, uh, how do you promote empathy and to understand something that's called counter empathy. Counter empathy is a recently discovered psychic process. It, it's been around for a long time. And that is a kind of psychological lure to foster suffering in other people. That's counter empathy. So how do we undermine counter empathy and promote empathy? So we're in, we just launched a project in which we're going to study this. We also launched another project, which is called Cultivating Curiosity. So it's not quite compassion, but curiosity is kind of on the way towards compassion because one element of dehumanizing the other is a sense of absolute certainty in their non-human features. You know, is absolute arbitrary delusional certainty. So curiosity is 
uh, a direction that undermines that sen- that false sense of certitude that the other people are evil. Um, so we're going to try to cult- do a study on cultivating curiosity, another study on psychological and uh, physical health for peace builders, which is a big project, and a fourth study on uh, in Sudan. I've been working in Sudan for many years. Uh, this study is on an oral history of the violence and a vision, their vision of a peaceful future uh, and a just future. Yeah. So mm-hmm. um, we don't have results yet. We're working on this. Yeah. And what you're talking about is really getting upstream from a preventative standpoint, which in our peace building field does not often get the attention, we instead wait for things to blow up, focus so much energy on that when the damage, so to speak, is already done and trying to pick up the pieces. So you're really looking exactly at, right. at an upstream. Well, I mean, and, and in many of these countries, the conflicts just cycle. Exactly. You know, you know there's not a beginning and end. And so I don't like the term post-conflict after, you know, the violence in I mean, there's no post-conflict in Israel-Palestine, even though the, the rockets stopped firing, you know, last month and, and in other countries. So prevention, that's our, that's our goal. And I yeah. can imagine something like that, even here in the United States, how that could be fostered in schools, how that could be exactly. um, part of the fabric of our educational system and how we engage with each other, what, what that once the studies come out and more work is done and pinpointing how that can be incorporated, it could be very powerful. Well, I think you really hit on a central aspect here. There, there's a lot of issues, for example, to have in the schools understanding of genocide, the history of genocide. So genocide studies in many states have been embedded in the schools. But to kind of on a bigger picture, Pete, you know, you're really speaking to what is peace. Um, so you say, well, what is peace? Well, a simple answer is secession, secession of violence um, when the guns stop firing. The better answer is that peace is um, a way of life that is embedded in many of our institutions, including as you say, the educational institution, it's a way of life to um, have sympathetic understanding for all people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we know what it means to have sympathetic understanding for our tribe. We're all in tribes. I know that's a little dramatic, but, you know, we all have our, our group who we care for and have direct love. The challenge is, can we have sympathetic understanding for other people? And I know there are cynics out there and yet to say no, but I would challenge them to have, do they have no sympathetic understanding when a natural disaster occurs in a far off land? The um, earthquake in Japan, the, the tidal wave 10 years ago in Aceh, Indonesia, um, and elsewhere, is there no sympathetic understanding? And those are the others. So do we have sympathetic understanding for the distant others? Most people would if they're suffering in a horrendous way. So that kind of way of life, uh, that's where I see peace 
at the core of our vision, our sentiments, our at least hopes for the release of suffering, of, of, of not just art, not just parochial compassion, but um, larger scale. Yeah, an active compassion. Well, that, we yeah. so the related question, exactly what do we do? And that, of course, is a strategic question, which calls for the expertise of, of you know, many uh, peace builders at all sectors, at the track one, at the track two, and of course, at the grassroots level. Absolutely. So Dan, it's been such a pleasure having you with us today. And before we end, I just wanted to give you the opportunity because we covered a lot of ground. Uh -huh. Is there anything else that comes to mind that you would like to share or something that we didn't cover? Um, well, one thing that I just would like to, that I believe is that, um, you know, we all have feelings about um, people we love and we all have a sense of caring for the people we love. Can we, as it were, expand the range, expand the scope of that uh, for other people and even embed that feeling of caring and understanding in a political context? And I know that seems in, in the current climate to be bizarre, but there are precedents for this. There's many precedents, but can we embed a sense of sympathy for your outgroup um, in, in a political environment? And I'm optimistic. I am seriously optimistic because I've just come across many, many cases of people doing amazing uh, things under very dire circumstances. Yeah, when you said that, my mind had this kind of image of this expanding boundary or bubble line of yeah. curiosity that yeah. goes beyond our own, as you said, tribe or those who we feel, think, or believe, or look like us, but is much wider and could you know span out even to the boundaries of our neighborhood, to our states. And exactly, and and sometimes we have to go far away yeah. to expand that even go back coming back home so you go far away you see how many times have young people done study abroad uh and they are just their lives are changed it's wonderful even us not young people like me go abroad and see things and then come home and have a different a different perspective so it's it's very very uh feasible yeah and i would say feasible and critically important for us as societies and humanity to find that mm -hmm. scope of curiosity and compassion. So thank you, Dan. You're quite welcome. It's a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us this week for the Think Peace podcast, where peace crosses the mind. Please visit our website, www.thinkpeacepodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via RSS so you'll never miss an episode. Be sure to tune in next week. And remember to think peace.